Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Kevin Sternberg from the University of Vermont Medical Center, talking about metabolic stone evaluation and 24-hour urine interpretation. Hello there. My name is Kevin Sternberg from the University of Vermont. I'm an associate professor in the Division of Urology, and um, I am a fellowship trainer in urology, and our dedicated stone guy here. And I'm fortunate enough to uh, hopefully give you some information on the metabolic stone workup and the 24-hour urine evaluation. So I'd like to thank Dr. Hampson and the UCSF uh, urology crew for organizing a really amazing lecture series. Um, So again, we're going to talk about the um, kidney stone metabolic workup with a focus on the 24-hour urine evaluation. Um, Understandably, this is a topic that uh, some of us love and uh, others just kind of need to learn and, and have the knowledge available. Um, But here we go. I'm going to do my best to give you the information, uh, some of which is confusing. So we'll hopefully have time for questions and I will make myself available at the end. And I'm not advancing. Why am I not advancing? Are you in the... Are you you on the actual thing? Okay. Technical difficulties is the hardest part of this. Okay, so I have nothing to disclose. The content is from the AUA core curriculum, our AUA guidelines, and Dr. John Asplin himself, who uh, is the uh, creator of Litholink, which is the um, 24 hour urine testing that we'll be using. Um, He is uh, really an awesome uh, teacher and has given some one-on-one lectures or personal lectures to some of us urologists. Uh, So some of this information was from his um, directed teaching and this is with his permission. So we're gonna go over the background of stone disease, guidelines and basics, uh, specific diagnoses and metabolic abnormalities, and then we'll end with litholink cases themselves. So the number we always see, prevalence of stone disease is 1 in 11 or almost 9% of adults in the U.S., and this is likely underestimated. Stone disease is increasing, um, and it's increasing in children as well, particularly in adolescents. And the cost of uh, nephrolithiasis in general is really quite significant, up to $4.5 billion dollars. And while once a male-predominated disease process, the gender gap is really narrowing. So when you look at stone disease, this is a chronic systemic condition with multiple contributing factors. Uh, Genetics, diet, lifestyle, medical comorbidities. um, And we now know there are some definitive associated systemic conditions with stone disease. Obesity, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, and hypertension. Okay, so what does the AUA tell us? Now this is for all newly diagnosed stone patients. So first time patient comes to your office, uh, they just passed the stone. Like anything else we do, you do a detailed medical history, including the pertinent medications, which I'll get to. 
you want to take a general dietary history, see kind of what they're doing, if there's anything that stands out. <clears throat> and then basic lab work. So serum chemistries, electrolytes, calcium, creatinine, uric acid. If you have a high or a high normal serum calcium, then you want to obtain a parathyroid hormone. Okay, so what are the pertinent medications? <clears throat> Something we see a lot of are the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, um, anhydrase inhibitors. That, so Topamax is one of the big ones I'll see a lot. Um, these can lead to a metabolic acidosis. Vitamin C, too much of that can lead to hyperoxaluria. Probenicid can lead to hyperuricosuria. Calcium and vitamin D obviously can contribute, although debatable how much. And then certain medications can actually crystallize themselves and form stones. So what else do we need to do? Um, we want a urinalysis like anything else we do in urology and a urine culture if there's signs of infection. <clears throat> so the urine pH is the other important part of the urinalysis, looking for is it really acidic or basic, um, and then other signs of infection. And then I listed here the urease producing bacteria. <clears throat> which we'll get to more a little bit later. Um, these are good to know. Uh, these are the um, bacteria that change the urine environment uh, to a setting that can lead you to uh, infectious-based stones. Uh, so you want to obtain a stone composition at least once, although it really depends on how far out it's been. So if you haven't had a stone composition in quite a while, I'll always send another one. Uh, these can change over time. Um, and a lot of these stone compositions are, are help direct your, your management. It's one of the main parts of this workup. And then we want to review imaging uh, that's available. And like my boss here says, we want to obtain an inventory of the stone. So what's actually in there? Where are they located? What's the overall burden? Uh, sometimes I can give you a sense of the uh, metabolic process behind it as well. So that was the basic workup. Now, who requires metabolic testing, including a 24-hour urine evaluation? So you can categorize patients into high risk. So those with a family history, malabsorptive bowel disease, or so ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, bowel surgery, so large bowel resections or um, gastric bypass surgeries, particularly the Roux and Y, uh, gout, metabolic syndrome, Osteoporosis we'll see in a little bit is important um, with the association of hypercalciuria. Uh, young age, so there's not really a cutoff, but younger patients we know um, they have longer to, to form stones again, and it's good to, to get on it now and, and see if we can prevent them. So recurrent stone formers, obviously they're ones we want to focus on. And then even if the patient is not um, a recurrent former or doesn't have any high-risk characteristics, it's still, there are still some who say, boy, I never want to do this again, and are really focused on their, their diet and, and doing whatever they can to avoid it. And those people are certainly um, appropriate for a workup, uh, and the AUA guidelines agree with that. So the goal of 24-hour urine, te urine testing is to help guide your medical and dietary intervention um, to decrease the risk of stone recurrence. So the alternative would be doing a more empiric approach of telling people to drink lots of water and focus on you know, certain dietary things, but the, this we think really helps guide on how to prevent. There's been a long debate whether you need one 24-hour urine test or two. Uh, there's really not a clear answer. Um, and something that's important is patients should be told to do what they've been doing 
at the time the stone was formed. So sometimes we'll see a patient back and they'll say, okay, now you know I'm ready to do my 24 urine test. Um, I'm gonna stop eating all this you know, spinach and drink tons of water and stop these medications. But you really want them to keep doing what they're doing so it's telling of why they formed the stone. Uh, so I'll leave people on everything, um, which isn't really gonna change their clinical outcome in the short term. Um, and then you'll see that most patients um, wind up doing their collections on, on a weekend, which is a lot easier to do, but it may not really reflect the, what's truly going on in their lives. If people are working five days a week, you know, then, then you do it on the weekend, it's hard to you know, really uh, make sure that correlates. Um, so sometimes uh, one thought is you can have a patient do a test at work and at home, and that could be your two. Um, and it's really difficult to, to do it at work. Sometimes you just don't have everything you need. So the 24-hour urine parameters, um, what's important? <clears throat> so volume is clearly the most important thing, and that's been what's shown in over and over in the studies. Um, it's really the, the one thing that really repeats itself is uh, looking for a volume over two and a half liters. Um, you are looking for a calcium output under 200, uh, oxalate, uh, 40 is the key number there, uric acid levels, your pH, uh, and your citrate. Some of these you'll see have a, um, a norm for men and for women. Your creatinine, so you look at the 24-hour urine creatinine um, per weight-based guidelines, and that is used, um, it's one of the first things you should look at, which will um, do some um, some examples, but you wanna make sure you have an adequate collection. So if these are way off base uh, and it's an under collection or an over collection, then it's hard to use the data from the 24-hour urine test well. So other parameters, uh, sodium and potassium, and then you'll see these protein uh, parameters at the end, which um, thanks to Dr. Asplund, I now understand a bit more and hopefully I can help you guys with this too. So you have your protein catabolic rate, your uh, urea, urinary nitrogen, and your sulfate. Uh, and then the supersaturation indices are uh, unique in the litholink, and they are really important to help guide how we're doing with our treatment. <clears throat> so you want your supersaturations to be you know, within the certain guidelines that are given, and uh, that'll tell us if we can get them in those guidelines, then you shouldn't really be supersaturating to make that stone type, and that'll help guide how we're doing with whatever we choose to intervene with. <clears throat> so these are the specific 24-hour urine abnormalities uh, that we'll discuss, hypercalciuria, hyperoxaluria, hyperuricosuria, hypocitriuria, low urine pH, and low volume. So hypercalciuria, is defined as greater than four mg per kg per day or greater than 200 milligrams a day. And you wanna to try to have that done um, this on a calcium or sodium restricted diet. So basically hypercalciuria can be attributed to improper calcium handling either in the GI tract, in the kidney or in your bone. It does increase the risk of bone disease and osteoporosis. So um, often in these settings, you wanna consider bone mineral density testing. And then these types are kind of what we used to look at and, and test about, but um, they're not as important in terms of how we manage these patients clinically, but you have absorptive hypercalciuria, which is increased absorption from the intestines. Uh, that'll, you'll have a normal uh, parathyroid hormone or suppressed parathyroid hormone. 
uh, renal, which can be impaired reabsorption from the proximal or distal tubules, uh, and then resorptive is really the one to differentiate, which is um, mostly due to primary hyperparathyroidism. Hypercalciuria and diet. So the main players obviously are calcium, but then sodium and animal protein. In general, stone formers are more sodium sensitive, um, so the goal should be less than 120. Uh, interestingly, when patients are instructed to, to drink more fluids, which is what we all tell them right away, there's a tendency to increase your salt intake. You might be drinking certain fluids with more sodium in it. Um, so you could be kind of shooting yourself in the foot there, drinking more fluids, but in, uh, worsening your hypercalciuria. Uh, sugar and caffeine can affect calcium output, and so can these protein shakes, these protein loading shakes can cause significant hypercalciuria. Hypercalcemia can get uh, pretty involved, so I'll try to keep it uh, simple. The, um, if you have a high or normal parathyroid hormone, um, you should consider primary hyperparathyroidism. Um, so again, even if it's a, a, a high normal, you can still consider hyperparathyroidism as the etiology. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be a, a, you know, a huge elevation in the, in the levels. Um, if you have borderline results, you should have your blood work done fasting, which can account for the diurnal variation. And you want to try to draw your calcium at the same time as your parathyroid hormone. Patients should be taken off of a thiazide at least two weeks if you're working up primary hyperparathyroidism because thiazides can lead to hypercalcemia. So that's important. Um, so additional causes of hypercalcemia. So either your parathyroid hormone is elevated or it's lower suppressed. So these are the ones that with, will have lower suppressed parathyroid hormone. So you should consider malignancy, which can be either from bad metastatic disease or parathyroid related hormone, granulomatous disease. So sarcoid is kind of the big, um, the big ticket item here. You have extra renal sources of the active form of vitamin D uh, produced from uh, alveolar macrophages. Uh, TB and silicosis, thiazides and calcium supplements, um, thyroid disease, vitamin D intoxication, and then a rare um, uh, entity known as 24-hydroxylase deficiency where you can't break down the active form of vitamin D. Um, and in that setting, you have too much vitamin D and then more calcium reabsorption um, and hypercalcemia. So if you have an elevated serum calcium and a low parathyroid hormone, it's not primary hyperparathyroidism. So you should check your uh, 125 vitamin D level, which again, that's the active form of vitamin D. Um, you can have primary hyperparathyroidism in the setting of normal calcemia. Um, and if you have an elevated parathyroid hormone and your calcium is normal, make sure you check your renal function and your vitamin D levels again. Uh, if you're in renal failure you're, or you have poor renal function, that can increase your parathyroid hormone. <clears throat> and you want to make sure you're not deficient in vitamin D. So you want a level greater than 30. Um, that's what you should check there. Thiazides. So don't start a thiazide if there's any level of hypercalcemia. Really severe levels of um, elevation in your calcium, which can be seen in sarcoid, can be medical emergencies. <clears throat> Thiazides in general are great when somebody has hypercalciuria in the setting of hypertension, which is what they're made for. 
Um, and the typical doses that we'll see, so people could be on hydrochlorothiazide or combo pills, and these are often too low to really significantly impact the, um, the calcium in the urine. So we have a tendency to use the longer acting thiazides, chlorothalidone or endapamide, which lead to a greater percentage fall in the urine calcium. So I'll usually use chlorothalidone, but um, either of those are kind of the, my staples at least. Side effects of thiazides are important. Um, anytime we prescribe, we have to talk about the side effects. So hypokalemia is important for, um, for thiazides. Um, you can either start somebody on a potassium supplementation right away, or you can follow their labs. I tend to follow their labs um, and get another, uh, like a basic metabolic panel in about six weeks, uh, just because people don't really want to be taking uh, too many new pills at a time. Um, but if you need it, you need it. Um, and the hypokalemia can actually lead to hypocitriuria, which I'll get to in a little bit. So that's definitely something that not only can you have the um, effects of the low potassium, but it can also worsen your citrate, which is important for stone prevention. Um, I've seen some patients have uh, significant hyperglycemia and it's been difficult for them to manage their diabetic control. Uh, that can happen with a thiazide gout from increased uric acid and erectile dysfunction. So next, um, briefly, we'll talk about hyperuricosuria, which is defined as greater than 700 milligrams a day. Um, this can lead to calcium oxalate stone formation from heterogeneous nucleation. Uh, it does contribute to uric acid stone formation, but we'll see there's other important factors for that. And this can be caused, uh, it can either be from lots of animal protein intake, gout, myeloproliferative disorders, chemotherapy, uh, certain meds that we talked about before, and certain rare hereditary conditions. Hyperoxaluria can be broken down into dietary, enteric, uh, or primary. So dietary, th this is one of the topics that I think uh, has been uh, so overdone uh, and stressed, um, and it's what people find on the internet and really finding every single food possible that could have oxalate in and trying to avoid it. Um, so we're, we're tending to, to do less of that approach, um, but certainly there are oxalate containing foods that are particularly high um, in oxalate and uh, if patients do eat a lot of them, they can contribute. Um, vitamin C, uh, that's always a testable question that can lead to hyperoxaluria. Uh, enteric is a big one, so malabsorption syndromes, if you have an, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, pancreatitis, uh, and this is the classic mechanism of um, that you don't absorb your fat and you have saponification of your calcium, um, and then the, there's not enough calcium in the lumen of the gut, so there's too much oxalate that then gets into the urine. Um, so typical findings for enteric hyperoxyuria low volume, low pH, um, low calcium, sodium and citrate, um, and high oxalate, obviously. And then primary hyperoxaluria, which I'll get to on the next slide. Um, so really important, oxalate absorption is impacted by your dietary calcium intake. So instead of really trying to limit each and every food that may or may not be high in oxalate, uh, what's more important is making sure that you're, um, when you're eating your oxalate, you're eating dietary sources of calcium with it. So the calcium and the oxalate combine together in the gut, 
Um, so patients who are avoiding calcium, which we used to tell people to do, um, are really um, doing a disadvantage themselves. Um, and then there's been a lot of research on oxalobacter formigenase, uh, which is an oxalate degrading bacterium, which I won't get uh, too much into here. Primary hyperoxaluria is autosomal recessive. It's a disorder of glyoxalate metabolism, and it's uh, results in an endogenous overproduction of oxalate, um, clinically recurrent stones, and, uh, and renal failure ultimately. There are three types, and one's the most common uh, and the most severe. It presents at a young age. Your oxalate levels can be um, 80 to 100 or even higher. And the only real treatment for this is a uh, liver or kidney transplant. Hypocitriuria, uh, defined as less than 320 uh, mg per day. And the important thing about your citrate is it really is dependent on your systemic acid-base status. So you'll lose citrate uh, in settings that um, are associated with acidosis. So when you have an acidotic systemic state, your citrate's gonna get consumed uh, to buffer, and then you're not gonna have enough citrate to ultimately be in the urine to help prevent your stones. <clears throat> so causes um, renal tubular acidosis type one or distal. And the mechanism there is an impaired hydrogen ion secretion in the distal tubule. Um, you can't excrete your acid load and therefore you develop a systemic acidosis. Findings there are hypokalemia and then really you'll see a, a very high urine pH and a very low urine citrate. Um, technically you wanna check your um, basic metabolic panel as well for true um, distal RTA as you'll have the systemic acidosis checking your uh, serum bicarb. Chronic diarrhea can lead to loss of bicarbonate and systemic acidosis. Medication, so thiazides again can cause hypokalemia and, in, and intracellular acidosis. And the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors um, can also lead to a RTI, RTA type picture. Um, and then hypocitriuria can be idiopathic. So RTA um, typically results in calcium phosphate stones. Uh, that's important to remember. And again, you can't excrete your acid load. So I'll reinforce this at the end with our um, Lithlink slides, uh, but your ammonium level is not going to be high in your 24-hour urine testing. Um, so you'll see that decreased indicative of being unable to, um, to excrete your acid. And you treat these um, patients with uh, potassium citrate. Um, so even though they have a very alkaline urine pH, you want to make sure you get citrate back in their system. So it's sort of a balancing act at times. Um, you don't want to push the pH too alkaline because it will further increase your risk of calcium phosphate stones, but the citrate um, is really important as the stone inhibitor. So uh, citrate complexes calcium and, and it's also a direct crystal inhibitor. Um, and then again, the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors um, can cause a similar picture um, leading to stones. And you'll see when patients are on these meds, you can give them the potassium citrate and it's really hard to get their um, citrate levels to, to go up. Um, so often you really have to get them off of these meds.
low urine pH defined as less than 5.5. This is the main factor leading to uric acid stone formation. So certainly low volume and hyperuricosuria can uh, contribute, but the main factor again is your, um, your acidic pH, which I always tell patients is great. We actually know the mechanism and we can prevent this. Uh, again, you can have heterogeneous nucleation and lead to calcium oxalate stones. Um, and there's been lots of research done on the metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes, and these patients form uh, uric acid stones more commonly than others. Um, and the mechanism here is insulin resistance, which impairs your renal ammonium excretion. So again, you're unable to excrete your, your acid load. So acid base, um, again, this is where it can get uh, somewhat confusing, um, but your acid production, at least dietary, is usually methionine and cysteine, um, also lysine and arginine. And um, so we'll look at the 24-hour urine test, but your higher sulfate excretion. So if you have high sulfate excretion, that means you're, that's your acid load. That's what you're taking in. Um, your alkali production is from aspartate, glutamate, and other organic anions in general. Diets are net acid producing. And uh, what you'll want to see is your sulfate, which again is our dietary acid load or what we're taking in. Um, we want our bodies to put out the acid we take in, and that's uh, reflected in your ammonium. So those should travel together. Okay, so these are different scenarios. Um, that uh, you can get into. Uh, so with alkali therapy, you'll see a high urine pH and you're going to see a suppressed ammonium secretion. With urease activity, you'll also see a high pH, but you're gonna see a very high uh, ammonium due to the uh, urease producing bacteria that we talked about before. Uh, metabolic syndrome, hyperkalemia, uh, or inadequate alkali treatment, you're gonna get a low pH. And that is, again, you can't get rid of your acid as ammonium. So the ammonium secretion is going to be suppressed. Um, and again, the mechanism is insulin resistance. And GI alkali loss or diarrhea, you lose alkali in the gut. Um, and the kidneys must secrete the acid, uh, resulting in hypokalemia and a low urine pH. And here you'll have your ammonium much higher than your sulfate. And if your sulfate and your ammonium are both high on the 24-hour urine test, then that's normal you're taking in and you're putting it out appropriately. Cystinuria is its own entity. And um, you need an alkaline urine to, to make the cysteine soluble. So that's one of the, the key factors in managing these patients. Uh, your supersaturation is somewhat important uh, that you wanna be less than 0 0.8, um, but a unique parameter to lithylink is something known as capacity. And that assesses the risk of uh, cysteine from, from forming new stones and from, um, it assesses its basically its saturation, whether it's supersaturated or undersaturated. And the, uh, the main benefit of this is you can use this um, while the patient is on a cysteine binding agent or a thi uh, thiol. So a negative capacity is bad. It means that the urine is, uh, is supersaturated and they're gonna form more cysteine stones and a positive capacity is good um, showing undersaturation. Um, at baseline, cysteine stone formers have a high urine pH. 
So when you see a cysteine stone former, they don't all immediately need to be put on medications. Um, you know, thiola is the binding agent and um, that's something that uh, is, it's a great medicine. Um, however, uh, the initial management really should be diet. You wanna focus on hydration, a low salt diet, and then a low protein diet, although it's not really a huge benefit uh, in terms of cysteine excretion. So alkalinization is the other key component. Uh, the solubility goes up with an increasing pH. And in order for the thiol drugs to work, you really need your pH to be up. Um, and it needs to be a pH of uh, 7.5 uh, for the thiol drugs to work best. Um, and this is an autosomal recessive um, disease process. So there's a 25% chance. Um, so make sure that you test the siblings. Okay, so some other just uh, tidbits. Uh, potassium citrate, so I always say, you know, or I used to say, why can't you just give calcium citrate, especially if there's some hyperoxyuria component to it. Um, but only 20 to 30% of the calcium is absorbed and much more potassium is absorbed. So the potassium is really the vehicle that gets the citrate in the body more and what does the alkalization. So when somebody's on calcium citrate, it, it just doesn't do the same for uh, alkalization. And then thiazides and alkali together, which seemingly is a great combination, um, but you may not get as much of an increase in citrate if you're just on the alkali alone, again, due to the thiazide effect uh, that can lead to hypocitriuria. All right, so we have time for some cases. Okay, so again, um, I'm going to, I wish we could do more interactive, but um, these are cases, um, some of my own cases, some from Dr. Asplund, trying to hit home some of these main um, points that we reviewed. So the first case is a 50-year-old man who's had a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass four years ago, and he's passed a whole ton of stones since, it's by, since his bypass. So uh, we'll, this is a, an adequate collection, which um, is down, down at the creatinine per kilogram. Uh, his volume is low. So again, the goal is two and a half liters of output. Um, if you're trying to tell patients, just anecdotally, um, I usually tell them eight to 10 eight ounce glasses of fluid. And intuitively, this is, um, it makes sense, but it's hard for patients to really increase their volume. And there's been a lot of good studies looking at different apps and water bottles and, and things like that. Um, but what you'll see here is quite severe hyperoxaluria uh, and, the, uh, and an associated um, acidic urine pH. Um, some of uh, his issues are probably dietary as well as he has a huge amount of, uh, of salt intake. But uh, this is to drill home the hyperoxaluria uh, in the setting of the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. So again, the, uh, the calcium is relatively low um, and there just wasn't enough of it in the, in the gut to really combine with the oxalate. And then the extra luminal oxalate makes it into the urine and leads to stone formation. So the next case 
is a 56-year-old woman with a recent onset of calcium stones. Her uh, serum work, uh, lab work is normal. She, her calcium and bicarbonate levels are normal. And she's on Topamax for migraines. Um, this is one of the older meds for, for migraines. And I've had so many patients tell me that I really just can't get off of this. This is the only thing that works. So this can be somewhat of a difficult uh, situation for managing their stones. So what do we see here? Um, we see sort of the um, uh, metabolic acidosis type picture. So they um, can't excrete the, oh, well, it's not, the, it's, you'll see the high urine pH. So at 6.6 .6, uh, with significant hypocitriuria at 163. Um, so this is sort of a, a similar um, finding as you'll see with someone with distal RTA, not quite the same mechanism. Um, but again, you're gonna wanna give this patient some form of citrate uh, for, um, for stone prevention. Um, however, it, it may not really work as well um, while they're still on the uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. <clears throat> so and next case is a 36-year-old gentleman with, um, let this come my way. Uh, with calcium stones and a just mildly elevated parathyroid hormone. So the levels there. Um, and so as with um, some of these uh, other like RTA, uh, you tend to see calcium phosphate stone formation. Um, and resulting here is you have the, uh, the very significant um, hypercalciuria. So if you gave these patients something that we typically give, like a thiazide diuretic, it's, it's not going to work because this is not an absorptive or a, um, a renal leak type uh, process. This is resorptive. So the mechanism uh, here is the hyperparathyroidism, and therefore they get referred to an ear, nose, and throat uh, specialist um, to further work it up. And usually there's an adenoma that can be removed, um, and then it fixes their stone disease. Next case, this will drill home some of the um, acid-base stuff. 51-year-old gentleman, uh, 325 pounds, and uric acid stones. So this is getting at the um, metabolic syndrome type patient that we're seeing much more frequently. So going down to the, um, the acid-base things here, you can see the sulfate at 80 and the ammonium at 49. So you have a, a higher uh, sulfate then ammonium uh, ratio uh, showing that uh, um, it's the inability basically of the body to excrete the acid um, so the ammonium is low and that's going to be related to insulin resistance um, and then the result of being unable to excrete your acid is going to be an acidic urine pH and that is going to lead to your uric acid stones. So um, alkalinization is going to be the mainstay of treatment for this patient. Um, hard to ignore the uh, extreme hypercalciuria here, um, but I would start um, this patient with sodium and animal protein limitations, which is uh, clearly uh, contributing to that. So this is a... Uh, 28-year-old woman with calcium stones, um, and she has known renal tubular acidosis. 
So, um, there's a mismatch in the ammonium, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the sodium, uh, the ammonium and the sulfate actually do match because the kidneys can't excrete the acid. So this is the, um, you know, the, the, the renal tubules can't excrete the hydrogen ions. So this level, the ammonium should be much higher, but since it can excrete its acid, um, you're gonna have the resulting uh, very high urine pH and the severe hypocitriuria. And the, uh, the, the low citrate is the main cause here for the stones. Next case, a 55-year-old woman with um, calcium phosphate appetite stones. She has a history of um, no, uh, left-sided nephrectomy uh, due to stone disease, and she currently has a, a very large stone in her right kidney. So this is um, your classic infectious-based stone process. Um, and you're going to see a very high urine pH um, from the urease uh, producing bacteria. And you're gonna see here when you look at the sulfate and ammonium that the ammonium is, is a lot higher than the sulfate. So that's indicating the urease activity. Um, if this was more of an RTA, yeah, you wouldn't see this level be as high because that would be a different mechanism, obviously, of being unable to excrete your acid. So uh, infectious, infection based stones with urease producing bacteria, you're going to see a high ammonium level and a um, very alkaline urine pH. Okay, so this is one of my patients who I just wanted to drill home the, um, the difficulty at times for these metabolic syndrome patients and the different ways of treating them. So we have a whole bunch of 24-hour urine tests where um, her urine just was very, very acidic. And no matter what I did, I could not get her to be um, even approaching um, a normal pH um, to prevent her, her uric acid stones. Um, so I had her on increasing doses of potassium citrate, still just wasn't working, and um, we'll see some uh, literature hopefully soon, um, Chris, Christina Peniston and, and such, using um, baking soda. So all I did here was I added some baking soda to her uh, potassium citrate, and there we go. Her, she finally alkalized. So I don't know if that's um, anecdotal, but I've seen it a few times, and um, it's just another, another way that you could potentially treat these patients. So the next two are just um, uh, some uh, uh, cysteine cases. Um, so your negative capacity here is this is more of somebody who's uh, not well controlled. Um, and this is something else you'll see in cysteine stone formers. They sometimes do a great job, um, but then fall off the wagon in terms of uh, how they're staying with their, their meds and their alkalization and their fluids. Um, so the negative capacity here is showing that the urine, um, it, it's, it's a tendency to form more cysteine stones versus the next patient whose capacity has been positive throughout 
and uh, except once, and um, this patient's really not forming stones. And that is it. So um, if you could uh, sign in and share your thoughts and take the survey, that'd be great. And I really appreciate you giving me the time to talk about this uh, somewhat complex um, part of urology, but uh, happy to take any questions. Sure. Um. All right. So, hello, I'm Nate, I'm the moderator. Um, one of the urology residents at Vermont. So I had a couple of questions here. The first one we got was from uh, Katie uh, Trandum. Hope I'm saying that right. And the first question is, Dr. Sternberg, when do you consider the adult 24-hour urine collection parameters to be valid in a child? I'm not sure I have a wonderful answer for that, unfortunately. Um, so I, I know we use the, the 24 hour urine test um, in the pediatric population, but I honestly don't know. Um, oh, maybe my residents. Do you have a good answer? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure about the, the pediatric, um, how this uh, relates. But I will look up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. Um, all right, so the next question uh, is, if you need alkaline uh, urine for thiols to work, uh, do you alkalinize with something like potassium citrate prior to thiol administration if the pH is too low? So I'll, I'll do them concurrently. Um, I, I think that the mainstay is to, to get the urine, so I guess the question is, yes, I, I, you want the urine alkaline for the thiols to work. So um, I probably would start the potassium citrate or the alkalization first, um, but it, it kind of depends on the situation. But I think the, the main point is getting the, the alkalization, getting the pH up for the thiols to actually do their job. Um, and then the second, there's a two-part question. So then, is there a reduction of effect of either medication with this combination? Um, so, not sure 100% the question on that, but. Is there a reduction? Is there a reduction of effect of either med with this combination? So would the potassium citrate not work as well when you're also giving a thiol? I, so I, what you want to do here is, um, again, the, the, main, the main 
pharmacologic intervention here is the thiol, which is the binding uh, for the cysteine. And again, you're, when you first start treating uh, cystinuric patients, you want to focus mostly on, on hydration um, and diet and things like that. But if they need it, um, the thiol is, is what's going to um, bind the, the cysteine and the um, potassium citrate is more of just an adjunct to that. Um, okay, and then uh, the next question is, does uh, the presence of stones at the time of 24-hour urine collection affect the results? So that's a good question. Um, we're taught yes, and I'm not sure I have a good mechanism for why, but ideally you want to get the patient's stone free um, and then work them up. Um, it's not always the most feasible thing to do, but I'll usually, my norm here is I will, I'll address the stone surgically. I'll see the patient back. Um, if there's a stent in place, I'll remove their stent and then I'll have them wait about six weeks uh, where I'll have them come back uh, to, to review their 24 hour urine evaluation. Um, and then I usually get an ultrasound as well, just as part of the guidelines to make sure there's no hydronephrosis. Um, Um, the next question is about strategies of alkalizing urine in patients with uh, congestive, heart, congestive heart failure and high potassium. So you don't want to give them potassium. So that's a good question. Um, and certainly potassium should not be given in those situations. So, um, you know, there, there are other forms of alkalization. One I mentioned uh, using sodium bicarbonate, um, although I guess the sodium may impact um, blood pressure and things like that there. Um, and then, you know, you can take the dietary approach for hypocitriuria. Um, you know, we all, we all kind of start and offer patients to um, use lemon and lime juice, um, you know, we can work with a dietitian. I usually give my patients a, a sheet kind of explaining um, how to get dietary citrate in, in you. And there's even a recipe for uh, lemon juice. Um, I, I tend to think it doesn't work quite as well as the pharmacologic interventions, but that might be a good, um, a good approach in those situations. Um, I'm gonna skip one for now, but... Um... Um, how long uh, do you keep patients on uh, potassium citrate for in those you're treating? So the, um, typically this is a, a long-term process. Um, it doesn't, I mean, again, it depends on what you're giving the potassium citrate for. Um, but usually I will, I'll, you know, follow them with repeat metabolic workups, uh, 24 hour urine tests. And once you get them at the right level, um, they really stay on it unless you can do something dietary to, um, or as an adjunct to kind of uh, get them off of it. But this, the potassium citrate can be a, a long-term uh, med for a lot of these patients. Um, and uh, how often do you repeat the 24-hour urine evaluation? So I, I repeat the 24-hour urine test um, basically um, it's case specific. 
So I don't really have a, a guideline, um, but again, I'll usually get my first one about six weeks after um, surgical intervention uh, or, or, you know, after I see somebody for a stone passing. Um, and then it depends on what we're doing. So if I'm making um, interventions, then I'll usually wait, uh, you know, about three months and have them repeat the 24-hour urine test uh, at that point and have them come back and reevaluate. Um, and I guess it also depends on the, um, the severity of the abnormality. So if someone has, you know, really high levels of calcium and I want to get a thiazide in them uh, to make sure this gets down quickly, um, you know, then I might see them back a little bit sooner. But I think giving whatever you do a few months and then repeating the 24-hour urine test um, makes sense. And then once again, you get it, you get the number stabilized, you can really kind of um, uh, lengthen your, your timing between. Uh, the other thing I like to do is I'll follow patients with um, ultrasonography. Um, so sometimes I find myself telling patients that, well, your numbers aren't quite perfect, but we can see that you haven't formed any new stones. So sort of the, the proof is in the pudding there and the imaging. Um, so that's another way I like to do things and, and vice versa. If, um, you know, if they are forming new stones, then certainly we want to go back to the drawing board um, and start repeating your testing. Um, and um, in terms of side effects from potassium citrate, how, how do you do, uh, how do you manage the side effects from that medication? So the, the main side effects are going to be GI related, um, stomach upset, diarrhea, things like that. Some people just don't want to take them because they're such big pills as well. Um, but sometimes if they stick with it, they can get through it, but there are definitely patients who, who don't tolerate it um, and aren't compliant with the, do the dosing. So that's again, when you can go to some other things, um, the dietary approaches, um, the lemon and lime juice, um, depending on the severity, you can consider baking soda things like that. And there was another question, if you could actually go back and go over the first case presentation you had. Again. First one. Yeah. And that's our last uh, question for right now. So let's just save that one. The Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. Yeah. Okay, so this is the, um, the malabsorptive state from the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. Um, so basically there's fatty malabsorption um, from the surgical process and uh, it's, there's saponification of the calcium. So your calcium is sequestered and not available to bind to the oxalate. Um, and then you're gonna have lots of oxalate in the GI lumen that then ultimately makes its way into the, the urine. So you're gonna have severe hyperoxaluria. The, the norm here should be less than 40. Um, and then other common findings in this patient population is a, an acidic urine pH and low volume. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, 
urologycovid.ucsf.edu.